0: And so hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God, to all God's holy people, in Jesus Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether I am in chains or am defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in the grace of God with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best, And may be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of god this is the word of the lord thanks be to god So as I said, Philippians, like all of the epistles in the New Testament, is a letter. It is specifically a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And so I think it's important that we approach this letter as a letter, as something communicated by a specific person to a specific group of people, following the norms of letter writing that then give us a better understanding of the content Paul is expressing. Because these first 11 verses of the book of Philippians can seem a little unimportant to us. There are some formalities at the beginning and some general niceties spoken to the congregation, and there's a nice little prayer at the end of it. But this first part of the letter is in fact key to understanding the rest of what Paul is going to write. They give us some clues as to where we're headed. Letters in the first century AD followed standard formulas, just like ours do, with specific rules about how to address certain kinds of people and how to structure a letter. And Paul's letters are no different. All of Paul's letters begin with the sender. This phrase would include a name, a descriptive title, and possibly a co-sender. So in this case, we have Paul, his co-sender, Timothy, servants of Christ. And Paul is writing this letter from inside prison. We're not exactly sure where he's imprisoned at this point. He could be in Rome. But some scholars, and I tend to agree with these ones, uh, believe that he is in Ephesus. Wherever he is, he's in prison, and in prison he is entirely reliant on the goodness of his colleagues, like Timothy, who's close by, and the congregations that he has helped to plant to support him with food and clothing and other necessities. Nothing is provided for him by his jailers. And yet he still writes his letter as one with authority. Uh, Many letters in this time, as we look at formulas, many letters would list the recipient first as a means of reverence and respect and kind of subjugation. But Paul always lists himself first. Even from prison, he is leading these churches and caring for these churches as one sent by God, as one that has authority, as one who is confident that God is still at work in him. But the recipient is listed right after. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Philippi was a leading city in the region of Macedonia. Uh, It's a prosperous city situated on the Ignatian Way, a thoroughfare of trade connecting two sides of the Roman Empire. Does this? Oh, look, that actually does work. So this is Philippi up here in the region of Macedonia, just north of the Aegean Sea. And Paul first visited the city of Philippi on his second missionary journey, which is recounted in Acts 16. He wanted to visit Asia Minor, so this whole area in here, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. And then he receives a vision from a man in Macedonia asking Paul for help. And so he travels to the city of Philippi with Timothy, Silas, and Luke. And upon arrival to Philippi, he meets Lydia, a dealer in purple fabrics. They engage in conversation, and Lydia is converted to Christianity along with her whole household. Paul then frees a slave girl from an evil spirit, much to the chagrin of her owners, who were using her as a fortune teller. And so they haul Paul and Silas before the town magistrates who declare them to be rabble rousers and throw them in prison. But in the night, the Holy Spirit causes an earthquake to open wide all the prison doors and the jailer waking up in the morning is terrified that all of his prisoners are going to be gone. But of course, Paul and Silas are still there and they soon convert the jailer and his whole household to the faith. And then Lydia, the fabrics dealer, opens up her home so these new Christians can meet. And the church in Philippi starts to gather and to grow. So this is who Paul is writing to, the holy ones, the saints in Philippi. And it's clear from his letter that he has great affection for this congregation. The next part of Paul's letters always include a thanksgiving section, except for the letter to the Galatians, which is a little frosty at the beginning. But Paul is perhaps the most expressive in his letter to the Philippians. He refers to them as partners in the gospel. And this term at this time referred to business partners. The Philippians are actively and financially helping Paul in prison and helping to spread the good news of the gospel. And so Paul gives thanks. Not not so much that the Philippians are the most amazing people in all of Europe or Asia Minor, but that God is at work amongst them. After all, the holy ones in Philippi aren't holy of their own accord, but, says Karl Barth, they are unholy people, who nevertheless as such have been singled out, claimed, and requisitioned by God for his control, for his use, for himself who is holy. Paul is confident in these opening lines that God is present and active amongst the Philippian church and will continue to be so. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we have the sender, the recipient, the thanksgiving, and then we always get a prayer. And this prayer is almost always a foreshadowing of what is to come in the rest of the letter. Paul briefly speaks to what he will later expound on in much more detail in the body of the letter. And this is what Paul prays for. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. At the core of Paul's prayer for the Philippians... And really, his whole letter to the Philippians is a desire for discernment, that this congregation in Philippi would know what is best, and thus would do what is best, would live lives that bear the fruit of righteousness. And that, perhaps, is the core of any prayer we might have as a church, We want to live lives that are honoring to God, that are morally upright, that follow His will, that bear good fruit, and that takes discernment. Now, discernment isn't just about making a choice between one thing or another. When I stand in front of my closet on a Tuesday morning and think, should I wear a skirt or pants today, that does not require much discernment. That requires looking at the the weather and just seeing how I feel. Discernment gets at something bigger than that. Merriam-Webster defines discernment as the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. So we might talk about discerning the outline of a building through a thick fog. Or how we've come to discern the deeper meaning of a novel as we read the seemingly ordinary stories throughout it. For the church, Paul's prayer is that we might be able to discern what is best. What is, in fact, God-honoring. And I don't know about you, but I often feel like that is not always an easy task. Because the ways of God are unknown. They are mysterious to us a lot of the times. They can seem to be a little bit obscure. We see through a glass darkly, says the Apostle Paul in another letter, this time to the Corinthian church. We would love to know exactly what God would have us do in any given situation. But while Scripture gives us everything we need to know for our salvation... It is not, as much as we would like it to be, a step-by-step guidebook for all our day-to-day decisions. It tells a, a big story, a true story, an informative story of who God is and who we are and what God is doing in the world. It doesn't tell us the congregation here at Community CRC Precisely whether to begin one ministry program and end another, or what new opportunity God might be calling us to in our community, or how to prudently steward our finances, or how to live together when we have different opinions on really big matters. This requires discernment, the ability to grasp and comprehend what is obscure, the ability to grasp and comprehend the deep abiding truths of who God is and what his will is for us at any given moment, so we might then know and do what is best, what will bear fruit. The trouble is, we're not always particularly good at discernment. On the one hand, I think we're often tempted to make decisions out of pride. We think we know best, or we've already stated what it is we believe we should do, and so we have to stick to that lest we lose face. Or we come to a decision because it suits us, it is to our advantage. On the other hand, I think we also sometimes make decisions out of fear. And so we can be too hasty in trying to come to a conclusion. The world is full of uncertainty. It's changing rapidly. As I said a few weeks ago, it often feels like we are adrift, that we are unmoored, that we are unsure of where the shore is. So at the first glimmer of land, we chart our course and we head for that shore. We feel the solidness of the beach beneath our feet and we kiss the ground for gratitude of some semblance of safety and security. But what if God is calling us beyond that first shoreline? What if that sense of security and safety is in fact obscuring God's will for us? What if God is calling us to something a little farther from shore. Sir Francis Drake was an English ship captain, and he is best known for his circumnavigation of the globe from 1577 to 1580. And this poem, written in 1577, so right at the beginning of that journey, is attributed to him. Disturb us, Lord when we are too well-pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when, with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your mastery, where, losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes, and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Push us into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. When we ask, if it's not pride, if it's not fear, when we ask what is it we need in order to discern where God is calling us, Sir Francis Drake's final word is Paul's first. We need love. Particularly, says Paul, we need love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. We need to know God's love more deeply and fully We need to trust in God's love. We need to know what God's love looks like. We need to know God's love deeply in the core of our being. The pastor Ruth Haley Barton unpacks what it looks like for our love to abound in knowledge and depth of insight. She says that there are three beliefs necessary for the proper discerning of God's work and God's purpose in our lives. And I lost it all. That's the end of it. Okay. Oh, now we're in the songs. Everything. Do you want to pop it back up on to... Can you find the image of St. Paul in prison, the first one? Yeah, we'll leave it there. Cool. All right, Ruth Haley Barton. Three beliefs that are necessary for the proper discerning of God's work and God's purpose in our lives. Belief in the goodness of God. That God's will for us is the best thing that could happen under any circumstance. That's one, belief in the goodness of God, belief that love is our primary calling, and the belief in Jesus' promise of the Spirit as the interpreter of the demands of love in any given situation. In the rest of his letter, Paul will undertake to bring the Philippians to this place of belief to belief in the goodness of God in any circumstances, the call to love, to love God and to love one another, and the certainty of the Spirit's presence. He will communicate these truths that sometimes don't seem self-evident, that feel obscure and hard to grasp, so that this congregation might know God's love for them deeply and well and thus might be able to discern what is best. That is not an easy task for Paul. And so I love Rembrandt's St. Paul in prison. And I love John Durham's commentary on it. He writes, Here then is an old Paul. No halos, no angels, no piercing holy genius glare. Just an old man surrounded by his books, One shoe kicked off to relieve what looks like a bunioned foot and toes with corns. Paper at the ready, pen in hand. And that thinking look beyond where he is into the nearness of how to write down what he feels. It is not the look of writer's block, but the struggle to express a reality too large for mere words. The struggle to express a reality too large for mere words. But yet a reality that Paul knows deep in his being. The truth of which he does not doubt. He does not doubt that God does hold this world in his hands. Stormy seas and all. And that it is him who is leading us and guiding us with his love. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. (coughs) I'm a sucker for the movie Love Actually, around Christmas time. Particularly because of the opening scenes of that movie, which depict an airport arrivals gate, and then the lovely voice of Hugh Grant, which I'm sorry I cannot emulate, narrates over top of these scenes of reunion, and he says this, Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed, but I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were of hatred or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is. All around. What Paul will communicate to the church in Philippi, and so to us, is that despite what general opinion might say, that the world is full of hatred, and uncertainty, and hopelessness, and our best recourse is just to look out for ourselves, that the evidence in Paul's life leads him to trust that God actually is all around. That God's love is actually all around. That God is present among us in love. As you've heard, we've got a lot of discernment ahead of us as a church. And this is my prayer for us. That this journey through the book of Philippians will help us in that discernment as we come to know and trust a little bit more the love of God that guides us, that orients us, that holds us. Because that is what is at the core of discernment, not pride or fear or anxiety or complacency, but love. Actually, would you pray with me? And so, holy God, help us to know your love. When we are fearful or anxious or weary, bring us into the folds of your love. Remind us that you hold us fast, that this is your church, and that you are leading us out of your love. In our conversations with one another, help us to be loving. Help us to live in community, to live in unity. to go forward seeking your will for us in trust and in hope and with courage and with love. God, we thank you that you love us even though we do not deserve it, even though it astounds us sometimes. Thank you that you do not let go of us And so, as we walk through this book of Philippians, would you open our ears and our hearts so that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so we would be able to discern what is best, so that our lives as individuals and as a church community would bear the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.